This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Victor Nguyen Long. Uh, I live in Washington, DC. I'm a creative director and brand strategist. The majority of my career has been working at brands like Red Bull and Nike, and most recently took that experience to jump into the 2020 election. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Victor. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Uh, this is a question I, I ask myself uh, almost on a daily basis. In, in recent years, um, I've really thought about my own Asian identity, despite having grown up in uh, a Vietnamese household that really embodied Vietnamese culture. Um, I speak I speak Vietnamese fluently. I've spent uh, a lot of time working within the community. My mother uh, started uh, a nonprofit and my house was a rotating door of uh, Vietnamese uh, activists um, and, uh, and, and people involved in, in politics. Um, and, uh, but for some reason, in, I, I really realized that um, I had sort of two, two sides to my identity. Um, one, um, and, uh, one which was an American identity um, and one that was uh, a Vietnamese identity um, and uh, never should the two ever intertwine if I look back retrospectively. Um, and I don't think it was very clear to me until quite recently um, as I've really thought about Asian identity um, and Asian identity within the context of being American um, uh, as well. And so, you know, um, you know, I think now more than ever, because of people like you, Ken, because of the so many of the people that you um, that you interview, um, because of so many of the visible um, uh, Vietnamese American people and Asian American people, um, I've uh, I've really uh, I've found like a new sense of pride um, uh, with being Vietnamese, um, and um, I also think especially given the, the past four years um, and the political climate, um, I think being Vietnamese American right now um, is a, a, a really unique perspective amongst Asian Americans um, uh, as it pertains to politics um, and trying to unravel um, our parents' journey to this country uh, with, um, with the, the political climate and, and, and the way that um, Vietnamese Americans uh, think about politics in, in America. Um, and if you would ask me this when I was a, a teenager or even like 10 years ago, I would have had not had a point of view on it uh, at all. Um, and, you know, my, my journey into um, the political world is really, uh, has, has really been informed a lot by um, my upbringing, um, only realizing that in retrospect uh, and, and, um, uh, 
and uh, and 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 realizing that like I have a, a very unique perspective um, that um, that can be shared with um, uh, with with other people. Um, but you know, on one hand, at home, your parents tell you Vietnam, right? Um, uh, only to realize that uh, no, we're actually American, right? Uh, with Vietnamese roots. Um, and I do think, um, you know, the one time I've been to Vietnam, um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, spoke to, spoke to, uh, Vietnamese people, they, um, first of all, they thought I was Korean. Um, and they were, they would ask me, they're like, right. And actually I had never heard the word Hanko. Um, I'd heard that, that, that Han. Mm-hmm. And so I had to ask my mom what that meant. And then I was like, why do they keep asking me? And they're like, okay. And then I said, well, and they're like, no, God, my, my dog, you're not, a, you're not Vietnamese. I was like, but well, what do you mean? My parents have told me my entire life, like, Vietnam. and then I realized there was, and then I was like, oh, does that mean I'm a bit I was like, no, because you weren't born in Vietnam. I was born in America. I was born in Washington, DC. Uh, and so I was like, then what am I? And then it, it, it took me a little while during my trip there was to, to realize, I was like, oh, I'm, to them, I'm a Vietnam, right? Um, and so understanding that and that, that sort of dynamic was, was really enlightening to me. Um, and, and if I think back um, to, to sort of my, my journey to understanding my, my Vietnamese American identity, um, that was a seminal moment in there. And, and today, um, you know, especially in the, in the um, uh, in the context of uh, anti uh, anti Asian violence, um, I really realize um, and think back to like different very different moments where I'm like, yeah, you know what? As American as I think I am, um, you know, uh, to a lot of people, I'm still a, an Asian person in other, right? Um, and uh, and so you know, on a daily basis, um, you know, I'm I'm constantly asking myself this because um, uh, I have. In, in some ways been ashamed of my Vietnamese uh, uh, heritage, um, even though I embraced it in a wholehearted way yeah. um, at home, right? Um, but, uh, but did not, uh, did not bring that into, um, did not bring that into my, my American identity whatsoever. You know, we, I, as I sit here and, and ask and listen um, with the guests, I've really seen that an overwhelming majority of Vietnamese Americans have to grapple with this question of identity. It obviously feel uh, the same uh, for European Vietnamese. Uh, I think when I've talked to Australian Vietnamese and uh, um, Vietnamese Americans, we go through the same sort of struggles. And obviously in Vietnam, there is not, it's almost, people are like why are you asking me this question what does it mean to be vietnamese you know and and that's a privilege for for you know if you're vietnamese in in vietnam you don't have to grapple with this question it's just an absurd question but there's there's a lot to unpack i mean um you know bao nguyen and i have uh you know from the early days he listens to a lot of uh, different podcasts and he said you know maybe a good idea is to ask what it means to be Vietnamese to all the guests, because yeah. after all, it's the Vietnamese and listening to you, uh, 
explain your little brief uh, journey into the identity side of it. Uh, I always have to go back to the roots of where you grew up because not all Vietnamese Americans think about this deeply. Some of them don't want to think about it. Some of them don't need to think about it. But sometimes I feel like where you grew up has a lot to do with this question. And um, so can we talk a little bit about how your parents got to the United States and where they decided to resettle? Yeah, so uh, my parents actually have a very unusual, or I should say unconventional journey to, to, um, to the States. Um, so my father uh, actually came here in 1957, um, which, you know, uh, as, as most people know, like most Vietnamese immigrants came here um, uh, post-war, right? Uh, and I so mean, my there- father- there were even people that came in the 60s. I've never heard yeah. of anybody arriving in 1957. Yeah. Um, and so uh, predating that, my father actually had spent time here um, uh, time here in uh, at, at Fort Benning in Georgia for officer training. Um, so he was uh, a part of the South Vietnamese Army and, um, uh, and, and they come to the United States for officer training. So I had some familiarity with it. And then in 1957, got a scholarship to University of Scranton. So if anybody is an office fan, they know where Scranton, Pennsylvania is. Um, and, uh, and, and, and came here to study. Um, and uh, oftentimes when I think, when I talk to Vietnamese people about um, immigration, for example, and, 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 and race in America, I'm, I'm always reminded them is like, you know, you know, when my parents came over here, it was just a handful of years after desegregation in America, right? Uh, and they were handpicked to get and given scholarships to come here, um, and so there there is a very different experience um, that that uh, Asian American immigrants had uh, versus um, versus uh, other ethnicities uh, in in America. Uh, so in 1957, my my um, my uh, my father came here to study, um, uh, um, became Catholic. Um, Can I ask, and- how did he get handpicked in 19? 19- 57 um you know what and actually i don't know the exact um the exact uh story of how that transpired and now that you mentioned that i should i should ask um, i'm sure it's been told to me and i may have forgotten um but uh but i i, I want to say it was through the church um and so you know my father took his his uh his his baptism name which is john um and uh and um and then studied, and he was writing book reviews. Um, uh, he was writing book reviews, and some nuns from a nearby college um, um, called Misericordia was reading, um, read these book reviews, and, and invited uh, him to, to talk with them. And they asked, "Well, well, do you have a do you have a do you have a girlfriend? Do you have a fiance?" Um, and he said, "Well, yes, um, I have a fiance um, in Vietnam." Uh, and, and so they gave her a scholarship, um, uh, my mom, a scholarship, uh, to come in 1961 to a Catholic school called Misericordia, uh, college at the time. And now it's a university. Um, and it's in a small town in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and so my mom, uh, who had very limited English at the time, uh, came to, uh, to, um, Misericordia, uh, and, um, and as a twenty-something-year-old, she she it was, uh, it was she wasn't like a, a typical eighteen, you know, spending the college years as an eighteen to twenty-two-year-old. Um, she'd come as a twenty-something-year-old, 
um, and uh, and had a roommate named Roseanne uh, Roseanne Murphy, um, and uh, and uh, according to my mom, was the fastest talker in the world, and I know her well, uh, and she is a very fast speaker. Um, and Roseanne basically took my mom under her wing um, and, uh, and took care of her and made sure my mom eat because she weighed, my mom weighed 90 pounds when she came there. Wow. Um, and, uh, and slowly, you know, just um, uh, learn how to adapt to, um, uh, to American college life. Did, did um, they ever talk about what life was like in the early 60s in, in the U.S. in a small town? Yeah, like honestly, like I, I like I look back and, and I ask, I, I, I have probed quite a bit um, just to understand, like, you know, this is the peak. This is like the middle of the civil rights era. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've asked to see if they experienced any outright racism. And um, and I think on one part, um, because of a language barrier, I'm sure like I, I imagine there's just stuff that's lost in translation. Even today, my, my mom's English is impeccable. But like when I tell her about certain racial slurs, for example, she she's like, I've never heard that word before, right? Um, and so like even if somebody was yelling it to their face, like they may not understand it, right? right. Um, but I think the but I also might be different. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and I think, but on, on another hand, is like based on stories from my my who I call Aunt Roseanne, um, my mom's roommate, and uh, and my mom's stories. Like I think my mom had quite a charmed um uh experience um uh growing up um and uh and, and i mean uh, uh you know adapting to american culture um you know uh like the nuns for example like my mom was buddhist right and she's here at this catholic school and uh and the nuns would joke he's like oh twee well we're gonna convert you and she's like and my mom was like clever enough because she is quite witty she's like she's like she would say like she's like oh we'll we'll see who converts who Right. Um, and, you know, my mom, you know, remember has, has a moment because they'd had to go to mass and she went up for communion, not knowing what it was. And they gave it to her and then she had to spit it out because they, they were like, wait a second, you're not, you're not Catholic. Um, and, and she had uh, to spit it out at like, yeah, at yeah. According to her, she had to spit it out like after they put it, gave it to her. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she has a story of like, you know, she would play basketball and she's a tiny, she was a very tiny, tiny person. Um, and, and they would always give the ball to her because the, the opposing team would never expect her to, to know how to dribble and, 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 uh, and, 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 um, and shoot the ball. And, and lo and behold, like that, she was her, their secret weapon. Um, and, and like my mother was invited home for Thanksgiving. Um, and she tells me a, a really interesting story of like, you know, um, uh, the uh, the neighborhood uh, the neighborhood would would collect food to give to the needy, right? Uh, and to my mom, she was she was like astonished because she's like, wait, are are these people so rich that they can just give away food, right? Like she's just so astonished by that act, right, of benevolence. Um, that it's just because coming from Vietnam where you had nothing. Um, you know, to be able to afford to give away food, like that, that was such a surprise to her, but she was invited home for Thanksgiving and, and Christmases and, and, and really got like what I, I perceive as a very charmed experience, um, which I don't think is, is quite, um, you know, is, is, is a, is a very typical story for folks. I mean, you, um, you, you think yeah. about that, right? Being Vietnamese, Amer being Vietnamese in America before 1968, 
right? That heavy involvement, the Tet Offensive, the sort of like that's the line in the sand. And then in 1975, so 68 to 75, there's a sort of like uh, a sentiment in the United States uh, about the Vietnam War. But before 68, I mean, you could even ask how many people in America even knew about the Vietnam War. So as a young woman or a young man like your mother and father growing up before 1961 in the United States in such formative years, they probably see the United States in a totally different way that even we see it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what it's like, you know, when we, when I get into politics with, with, with my, with my mom in particular and, 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 and other people, like, you know, she, she was, she was blessed with a scholarship to a college where, you know, everybody from the nuns to the students to her roommate, like by, uh, in, like by her account is like treated her exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she came here with nothing in her pockets either um, and, and was able to make a life out of it. And, and my father, unfortunately, like my father has Alzheimer's. He's 91. Uh, he's about to be 91 next month um, and has Alzheimer's. And, and so unfortunately, like I haven't, um, he doesn't, I, he, he doesn't recall, um, like he wouldn't recall what it was like um, uh, back then. Um, and I haven't necessarily bothered to ask my mom if she, she knew of any stories. Um, but my father, my father has an interesting, you know, had an interesting journey as well from the, the, the little tidbits that I do know and, you know, did ask when I was younger, when he was, when he was, um, uh, when he was, uh, had full capacity um, was, you know, he, he studied, he studied at, um, at University of Scranton. He went and got, he studied for, I think, a quarter at uh, Michigan State University on a scholarship for his, um, for his MBA before transferring to Cornell um, and got his MBA in Cornell in the 60s. Um, and then uh, if I understand the timeline correctly, um, he couldn't get a visa to stay in the United States and didn't want to go back to Vietnam. So he flew to Brazil, <laughs> um, which is the only country that would give him a, a visa. Um, where he was there for, I believe, five years in Sao Paulo um, and worked. Um, and my, my parents had a 10-year engagement. Um, so they, so they, they, they had a, a long-distance engagement. And so my father learned Portuguese. So he speaks Portuguese as well as French and Vietnamese um, and, uh, and, and worked there. And I believe, if I remember correctly, worked for Eli Lilly there, um, pharmaceutical company. Um, I could be wrong about that, but... Um, and then... Uh, and then would send money back to my mom uh, and, and, and gifts um, as well. So, uh, and then he eventually came back um, and, uh, and, and my parents got married. Um, they, uh, uh, my mom for a period of time, I think when my father was in, in Brazil had gone out to Monterey um, uh, to teach Vietnamese uh, for the government. Um, uh, there's a language institute out there for the government. And so she's, she taught Vietnamese to, to, to um, State Department folks. I'm sitting here listening yeah. to to the history of your mom and dad, and I I am so devastated that I didn't start this ten years ago. That oh the man, I it, this is I, I I say this stuff all the time. Like I wish I'd been recording every single conversation. Victor, um, I I don't I'm sure you know how exceptional the stories that come out of your mom and dad are, but I mean I I've been doing this and meeting people in the community for a long time. And I have never heard of like your father's journey, five years in Brazil uh, as yeah, a man in the seventies. I mean, this is, 
you're not living in anywhere near the war or Vietnam as you know, you, your, your experience is way different than any Vietnamese person uh, can imagine, you know, like, what is your perspective after five years uh, in Brazil, probably during the height of the war, right? Yeah. And now I'm yeah. wondering, okay, well, if he got commissioned in Fort Benning or going through OCS in Fort Benning, uh, then did he have to come back to Vietnam to serve out a commission? I mean, what happened? I, I, I believe, yeah, I believe there was a, a, a period of time. Um, there's a period of time where he did go back, which is, is actually when my, he was introduced to my mother. Um, they got engaged um, uh, through a lemoy, right? Like a matchmaker. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, and, uh, um, and yeah, so there was a period of time where they met, uh, but then he, and then I think that's like very soon thereafter, um, very soon thereafter went to, um, uh, came back to the United States to, to study, um, in 1957. So, I mean, you imagine it's three years after the, um, you know, the, the, the revolutionary war, um, and, uh, and they ousted the French. So, um, so like, that's a, yeah, it's. It's a it's a strange time. Oh, so I should say not South Vietnamese army, but like the imperial, the imperial army that was fighting against the French is, is what my father was a part of. Yeah, and and I think in the oh God, I could be way off here, but in the fifties, in the U.S., I mean, the civil rights movement wasn't even you know there in the late fifties it wasn't, you know, yeah, we starting to roll out really heavy in the the mid sixties, right? Yeah, um, and and that's why, like you know, in the fifties was desegregation, right? Yeah. So, um, so that was like that was like I believe in like uh, here in Washington D.C., one of the first school districts in America um, uh, was the first desegregated school district or integrated school district in America, um, and and so um, and that was in the mid fifties, and so I remind my, my 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 parents of that and other Vietnamese um, older Vietnamese people of, of that because it's like. Do you realize it's like, and those that arrived in the seventies and eighties is like, they had 30 years of, of progression, right? Racial race, like race relation progressions before they even arrived here. Right. <laughs> and so it's not even, it's not even, it, it's, it's not even apples to apples. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, like, it, and that usually <laughs> that's interesting is because it usually stumps them. They're like, what? well, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so like, you know, and I, now, now that, now that I'm talking about this, I really do want to go back and, and ask for more specifics in terms of the timeline, but that, that is the general time frame. You um, got to Victor, you got to like sit down with your mom and, and, and really even put this on a recording to uh, yeah. it's so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they eventually, so they eventually, um, they got married 10 years after they were engaged. Um, and, uh, in, uh, they just had their 50 some anniversary. So I gotta do the math on that. But in any case, they, they got married in Washington, DC and, and settled originally in Silver Spring, Maryland for a brief time. Uh, and then in 1971, moved into the house that my parents still live in right now in Arlington, Virginia, which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's quite literally across the river from Washington, DC. Um, and uh, and my, my mother continued teaching Vietnamese for the State Department um uh to uh to diplomats and, and, and people working in, in the foreign service um and then my um uh and then my father uh went on um he has he his his background is all in economics uh so he went on to be a comptroller um for at the time if you can imagine for a consulting company that was owned by a black man right 
uh, Roy Little John Associates. So my father, since the the his his uh, basically you know his first his his career for more than twenty years was for uh, a black owned business um, uh, in the in the '70s, right? Which you can imagine is 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 rare. Um, and uh, and and one of the only, one of the strange stories like that that stick out in my mind was that he's like, oh Roy Roy had a Jaguar at the time, right? Um, had a, like a, a, for a car, and it's like that thing constantly broke down. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and I and I so for, forever in my head, Jaguars break down are bad cars, which is actually kind of true. So like, um, um, but it's uh, um, but I again, like I think it's a very unique perspective to you know an Asian an Asian man working for uh, a black business owner. I think I imagine was is not a common. Um, you know, career or experience. Um, so uh, I, I now I want to ask you growing up for you wasn't typical um, Vietnamese American because a lot of us grew up in households that I would even say, even if they were not prejudiced, the way they spoke, the way they used language around the black American uh, community is derogatory. No matter how you, no matter you know, I, I come from a very uh, uh, balanced. My, my mom and dad were very uh, keen, uh, and they were very uh, observant on how they spoke about uh, black folks. And you know, our neighbors were all black, and at the time, and they're still respectful. But at the, when I would look back, it's like a lot of the things that they said were not. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering, your father worked for a black-owned business and a black man. Your your life must have been very different growing up um, in Washington, D.C. as a result of your father having that perspective and your mom and dad being here so, coming so early. Yeah, so like, you know, I, I, I don't want to misrepresent my, 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 my dad's or my parents' lived experience because um, like I said, like I, I did not have the foresight to ask these questions when I was younger and when my father was at full capacity, like, you know, at full capacity. Um, uh, and so, but like, uh, to be perfectly candid, like I worked, um, I lived in an area, um, I, we, are we, my parents were in, um, an area in North Arlington, um, which is predominantly white. Um, uh, later when Vietnamese refugees came to, to the area, um, cause there is quite a, a large population of Vietnamese Americans in, in, in the DC area. Um, you know, basically it's like, if you were, if you were well off. You ended out in Fairfax, which is a further out suburb, which is also technically the the richest county in America, um, um, based on income. Um, and so, if you were well off and you were Vietnamese, uh, and this is also where like a large Korean population is as well, it's like you ended up in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, if you were not so well off, you would end up in either Falls Church, Virginia, which uh, or South Arlington, which is where um, Eden Center is. For those that know um, uh, know about Eden Center, it's 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 our version of Little Saigon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there. Um, and so my parents ended up in North Arlington where I went to, you know, I grew up with, uh, almost exclusively white people. Um, uh, I had like, you know, two and a half Asian friends <laughs> and, and, uh, and graduated with maybe, maybe six or so Asian people in high school, from high school. Um, and, uh, and, and DC at the time growing up was a very dangerous place. So you know, people go into DC, they went to work on K Street or wherever it was, like the, the safe areas, which is 
in generally speaking, northwest, the northwest quadrant of, of Washington, D.C., and then they got the hell out of Dodge. Um, because um, if, you know, like this was like the height of the war on drugs. Um, and this is all things I realize now in retrospect, right? And in the 80s and 90s, D.C. being the murder capital of the country and the crack capital of the country. Um, and so like, you know, my exposure to, to, um, to, to the black community was actually quite limited. Um, uh, uh, if anything, it was in, like through middle, middle school and high school was when I, I found myself um, befriending more, more, more people from the black community um, uh, and many of whom became really, really close friends. But like, you know, even then, like thinking back, there were several instances where like, you know, my parents, um, uh, you know, said or, or, or made decisions that were, um, that, that were racist in, in retrospect, you know, um, I, I had a friend, um, I had a friend who was, um, uh, that was, uh, that, uh, was Afro-Latino, um, and perhaps the, the most polite, the most, uh, well-behaved amongst my friends, um, and, and my parents, uh, I remember at one point telling me is like, Hey, I don't, I don't know if I, I, I trust them at my house. Right. Um, and, and that broke my heart. And in my mind, I'm just like, what are you talking about? He, amongst my friends, he is by far the, the best influence on me. Right. Um, and, and the, by far the most polite and by far the most rule abiding one. Um, and yet, um, that was an issue and, and you know, they, they eventually got over it. Um, because they got to to know him as a person, and I think that that story plays out time and time again. Of just like people are just afraid of what they don't know. And if if I would be honest, apart from my father's boss, like my 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 parents didn't have black friends, right? Um, part in part because of where we land, where we 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 had our home, right, in the neighborhood that we lived in. Um, we had plenty of white friends um, in the neighborhood. Uh, we had plenty of Latin friends, uh, a handful of Latin friends. They were our immediate neighbors. They were Bolivian. Um, but apart from that, I, I, I don't recall, um, uh, apart from my, 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 my dad's boss, of any other sort of Black people in our lives. And so, um, so like, and we hear this all the time. It's like, we, like, people are afraid of what they don't know, right? Or what, they, or what they've been fed or what they, you know, what the media tells them. And then uh, and then it isn't until they actually meet somebody where they're like, oh, but this person's different, right? Um, and so, you know, again, like, I, I think these are all things like in the, at the, with the cultural context of the time was very acceptable, right? Like we knew, like, like you know, the narrative of tough on crime and, and, and the war on drugs is like, was, was very believable. So of course we don't want drugs on the street. Of course we want to be tough on crime. Like, why wouldn't you? Um, but now, only now do we realize, um, now do we realize the, the, the immensely disruptive repercussions of, of, of that and, and the negative consequences. Or being, um, the, all of those things being political constructs, right? Of course, of course. Um, and, and you realize, and, and so like, uh, that's all to say is like, yeah, there are definitely instances where my, like my, my, my parents and my friends of parents, like, you know, had, um, let's just say racist, like, what we what we now call racist beliefs, right? Where um, where they were their their judgment and their perceptions were really clouded by a, a, a certain bias, right? Um, you know, uh, somebody um, uh, uh, this woman, Dr. Kira Banks, said something. Um, I heard her say something one time um, that uh, that really stuck with me when it comes to bias. Is is that um, uh, bias is like smog, right? Like eventually you have to cough it up anyway, 
right? You, you eventually, you, you always cough it up, right? Uh, and that's just to say, is like, even when you are, uh, even when you have the best intentions, like, you know, our, 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 our thinking and our judgment is, is clouded by some level of bias um, based on our lived experiences. And eventually, like, you just, you, you cough it up because it, it's like, it comes out, right? Uh, and it manifests itself in, 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 in ways that, that we may not be very proud of, right? Um, sometimes small and unfortunately sometimes large. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know what? Like if, if, if you're being told that, that it's predominantly black people that are committing crimes, right? Like all, and, and, and you live next to Washington, DC, where the, 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 it was the murder capital of the, of the country. Um, and, and uh, all your, all you hear all day is about crack cocaine or crack and not cocaine. <laughs> Um, then, then yeah, you start to understand, you have to start to really understand like why these biases exist in, 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 in Vietnamese and Asian communities. Yeah. And you know, you know, damn well, like in the, in the, in the upper echelons of politics, you know, those politicians are doing cocaine, you know, so many, oh, of them, I mean, so that's, much that's, that's the, that's a running joke, right? Yeah. It's like, that's the running joke is like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, they're talking about, they're like, everybody's like, like, you know, like talking about crack and how bad it is, but like, you know, these like you know, people on the hill are doing coke all day long, right? Like, I mean, it's 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 not even it's not it's like it's it's almost an open secret, right? Yeah. Um, and so and and that's and that and that only just makes it even more like insidious. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, it's it's like like it's it, it's the pot calling the kettle black, and 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 it's and and it just it it just makes it even more infuriating. Yeah, so and, and, but if you think about the if you think about the implications of this though, why, and I'm gonna just say it because why are politicians? Why are a lot of people in the professional ranks doing cocaine? Really, if you think about it, they're doing it because it probably helps stimulate their work cycle, right? Yeah. They get the zones where they can perform better. You know, a lot of them are probably using it as a stimulant to, to actually perform better at work. And oh, so yeah. it's propelling their careers. It's propelling their uh, trajectory to make money and to live better lives, quote unquote, right? But yeah. if you think about the inner city and the implications of drug use in that world, it's actually, you know, getting locked up and getting uh, into crime and getting busted. It's just, It's the same thing if you think about it. On yeah. a street level, it's different than in the office level. It's yeah. fucked up. Yeah, no, it's super fucked up. And, and you know, obviously, like I'm not, I'm not an expert on on any of this, but like I, I really, I, like a lot of it, I, I, I just blame capitalism, right? Uh, and 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 the, uh, like on one hand, it's just we're working people so hard that they need something like that, yeah, to get them through the day and get them. Like, I mean, we know, we know people in the medical profession that do cocaine, totally. right? Like it's because they had to do, they had to do 48 hour shifts, right? Rounds. And so like we, so part of it, I blame capitalism. And then, yeah, the, the, the negative consequences of that is, is that, you know, there's, in, uh, there's, uh, it, it impacts, um, you know, uh, black and brown communities uh, disproportionately because of perception and scapegoating, yeah. right? Um and uh, and and a complete lack of in, like uh, inability for 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 some of these people to look at themselves in the mirror, yeah. right? Um, it, it's the classic of uh, you know I always think about it as like 
you know, when somebody cuts, when you're driving and somebody cuts you off, you're like, that dude, right? Like, like, like what an asshole, right? But then when we're in a rush to go somewhere, when we're in a rush to go somewhere, we won't hesitate to cut somebody off and justify it as like, it's okay. Cause I'm in a rush and I did it carefully. Right. Yeah. So like it, it, that, that's, that's really, I think really the, the best analogy for it all. What, what did you study in college and what was your direction? What was your path? So, so this is where like, I, I always, I always, I always give a lot of credit to my parents for being relatively rather atypical Asian parents, right? Like, they never really forced me heavily into a, a career like the, the the quintessential, you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer, right? Um, my mom, my mom always said she's like, you don't become a doctor because even though all of her friends, like, all of her friends' kids are doctors, right? And it's like, don't become a doctor. You're you're not smart enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it's just too much school, right? Um, and then uh, and then she's like, don't don't be don't become a lawyer because I don't uh, I don't want you to have to lie, right? Cause that's her perception of lawyers. Um, and then engineering for me, like I, I was always, I was, I, so my mom and my grandfather and her father and my mother and, and her mother, my entire mother's side of the family are, are prolific artists, like, like uh, poets, writers, like creatives through and through. Um, and I grew up uh, drawing as well. And, um, and, uh, and was very and, and reasonably good at, at art, um, but it was always a hobby. Um, and, uh, but I was also reasonably good. My dad's a very analytical person, very math driven and science driven. So I was also very good at math and science or reasonably good, I should say, math and science. Um, and, and so, and I love technology at the time. I, I had a computer in my house since like 1987. Wow. Um, and, uh, in, uh, in, and I've always, I, so I grew up with computers, which is also very rare. Um, and so I wanted to get into technology. Um, and at the time, um, I had like friends of my parents were engineers. And so I was like, oh, this seems like a really practical thing to do. Um, and, and so I went to school for, I, I applied to six engineering schools, uh, schools for engineering, uh, and then one, one for, um, for film. So I applied to NYU Tisch um, for film because um, I was also one of the few people in my, in my school that had a video camera because I grew up skateboarding. So I would, I, I asked for a video camera to videotape my friend skateboarding. But then I became like the de facto person that films stuff for people at school and for video projects. Um, and I and I, was, I had one Vietnamese friend, one Vietnamese friend who um, who ended up going to NYU Tisch um, for film. Uh, and I was always really inspired by him because he got me interested in film. Um, but in retrospect, I really knew nothing about film. Uh, I just knew I liked cameras. Is um, your friend still in the film business? Uh, so he's in the theater business now. Um, so you know he, he went to school for. For, for film, I believe. Um, definitely went to Tish. Um, uh, oh, actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, he might have actually ended up in at Boston, in Boston. Um, but in any case, um, he did pursue it and then now is working in theater. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, so in any case, I, I, I didn't get into first school for film, uh, got into uh, Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech. And then I looked at US News and World Report to see which was the higher ranking in terms of like the rank, yeah, in terms of better schools. Yeah. And uh, I chose Georgia Tech um, and I went sight unseen, like because visiting colleges is not a thing you, Vietnamese American parents uh, encourage you to do because yeah. they're like, you've gotten the college, go. Like, it doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if you like the culture or not. Like, just go, <laughs> right? Um, so, so I went to Georgia Tech, uh, sight unseen, did not know it was in the middle of Atlanta and, uh, and I studied electrical engineering. 
Um, wow. Yeah. So, and, and oddly enough, I, 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 I went to school, I, I started school in 1997. Um, at the time, height of the tech boom, right? Um, NASDAQ had an all-time high. Everybody that I knew that was graduating at the time was like, you could have had a 2.0 and you would have gotten a $60,000 a year job at Deloitte. Like, right at the very least. Yeah. So I'm like, great. I'm gonna go in. I'm gonna graduate. Um, was immediately humbled. I still don't know how I got into the school. To be frank, my 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 grades were good. My SAT was pretty mediocre at the time. Uh, and then uh, and I took my first class and I realized I was like, oh, my entire grade is based on a midterm and a final. And like my grades were always good in high school because I was really diligent about homework. My, my tests were terrible, like we're, we're okay, but I got, there's a homework grade, right? Then in college, you're like, oh, you gotta, you have to have the discipline to do homework on your own. Like, like, and, and then you show up for two tests and that's your entire grade. I'm like, oh, I'm fucked. Um, and so, 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 you know, I ended up not doing really well in school. Um, and, uh, uh, and I graduated, I took five years to graduate school. That was interesting to explain to my parents. Um, uh, it took five years to graduate from school. Uh, I graduated in 2002, which at the time, tech bubble had burst. No engineering jobs anywhere, even if you had a 4.0, right? Um, and, um, uh, and I graduated with a 277. <laughs> and the only reason I have a 277 is because I, I took a bunch of electives. Like, uh, like I, I, was speak, I speak French fluently. So, like, so I, like I, took, I got a French minor and uh, an engineering entrepreneurship minor. And, and, and that was, and that's what buoyed my game. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but at the time, like I, um, my last year in school, a friend of mine, Jason Rodwell saw me, like saw me walking from the student center. was like, Hey dude, I have this job with Red Bull. I need to find somebody to take my shoes. Like you'd be perfect for it. Like you want to, you want to do it. And at the time, like you can imagine like 2000, 2001, like Nobody knew what Red Bull was. It only arrived in America in 1997 and arrived in Atlanta in 2000. So like nobody knew what Red Bull was. I had maybe had one or two Red Bulls right. at the time. And, and basically the job was called a student brand manager, which is basically you're the campus rep for college, for, for, for your campus. Um, and I was like, I know nothing about marketing. I'm an engineer. Like he's like, but no, you're social and like, you know, a lot of people. And so like, I think you'd, you loved it. And I was like, okay, fine. A few hundred bucks a month. Like, like, sure. Why not? And then I got into it and I was like, Oh, I, this is really fun. Like, what, what, what was the, what was the responsibility? What was the job description? So basically like, unlike other, like I, I still stand by this is like Red Bull has the most sophisticated uh, student marketing uh, program in, in the world on the face of earth. Um, because rather than just having a, a kid stand out there in the middle of campus and like set up a table and a tent and like hand stuff out, right? The job of a student brand manager is not the person that drives the, the car, that's called the wings team. Um, and back then it was called consumer educators, um, but now it's called the wings team. Um, the student brand manager was like a mini marketing manager for their campus. So, you know, every campus is different, right? Uh, UC San Diego, I guarantee you has a surf club, right? Georgia Tech does not, right? University of Colorado Boulder has a um, has a snowboarding club and a ski club and a, a rock climbing club, right? Uh, you know, Georgia Tech doesn't. Georgia Tech has an engineer like a, a race car engineering club, right? Um, and and you know what? Like, and and the skateboarders are actually not the cool people at all, right? Whereas I guarantee you, in, in at UCLA they are, right? Yeah. And so the idea was like, 
you know, really lean on these students who are experts on the campus to tell us what is interesting and where it intersects with Red Bull, right? And so, and only I, because I'm on the ground on campus, mm. know that like, hey, you know what? You actually don't want to go uh, sample and give Red Bull out at the library because it's just social hour. Nobody's studying there during finals, right? It's, everybody's just dicking around, right? You actually want to go to the bottom of the econ building, right? Because that's where people actually go to, to, to study and pull all-nighters, right? So that's where you want to give somebody a Red Bull, right? And so that was the remit. And so because I did know a lot of people and was friendly with a lot of different groups of people, like it worked out really well because I was like, oh yeah, like the soccer club and student government and all these other things, like, yeah, you need Red Bull for your event? Great. Hey, do you want to, you want to try to do like, like this, this event for your club? Cool. We'll help, we'll help produce it for you. Um, and, um, and, and, and like, you know, I still thought of it as a hobby, as a side gig. There's no reason for me to believe that I could do anything other than what I was studying, right? Um, and I always say this, I, one of my greatest regrets is, is that um, like nobody told me art could be a career, mm, yeah. right? So nobody told me that somebody, you know, somebody's job is to design this phone, Yeah. right? Like design was just not a thing that registered and it didn't translate. Like if I could draw, I could design the logo on a can, right? Or a, a logo on a poster or, 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 you know, do something like, like the work back here, right? Like, it just didn't translate to me. So, so it never felt like a practical thing. Like in my mind is like, Oh, you, you pursue art. You're just a starving artist. Right? And you know what, Victor, I'm going to cut you off real quick. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. 2021, there's kids out there that still don't think about it. They still don't know this. Yeah. And yeah. that's no, why I, I, you I, on and talking about this very thing in 2002 or three is so important because even today, and I guarantee you in the next 10 years, kids aren't even realizing that the opportunity or the ability to just say, I, that's something I want to do. I want to make a movie. I want to make art for a living and make a lot of money doing it. It's not in our lexicon. It's not in the Vietnamese culture here in America or abroad. No, totally. And, and, and I like, you know, I was talking to, to, to Bing Chen from, from gold house and, 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 um, uh, and some other folks from gold house. And just telling them is, is like, yeah, you know, part of me just wants to like be able to tell these stories. Like, like I historically like and fully admit that like uh, I have uh, underestimated the importance of representation, mm. right? Because I saw like, because of my proximity to whiteness, right? This is something like, you know, when you talk about what it means to be Vietnamese, what it, and, and like started to grapple with my Asian identity, that to me and understanding that was, was a, a a, a crucial and critical moment in my sort of journey to understanding my Asian identity was that I realized that for my entire life, like the majority of my life, I just wanted to be white. Yeah. Right. And that's so embarrassing to say, right. But like, I thought if like, and I always prided myself on being like the one Asian dude amongst all white friends. Right. Or, or just like a multi, like, you know, a, a, like multi, like a, like non-Asian people. And I would actually like look down on Vietnamese like immigrants and, and, and people that work like, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, surrounded themselves with exclusively Vietnamese people. Right. And I, I used to speak like, I, I used to think terrible things about, about, about those groups. Um, and, 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 re and realize that this is like, no, at the end of the day, like, you know, like Asian people get a pass in so many ways, but at the end of the day, I'm still an other, right? When it really boils down to it. Um, and so like, for me, it was just like, oh, be like, I, I mean, in college, I was 
I was, I was like the only Asian person, one guy that was there, but like uh, there's, so let's say one of two Asian people that was an entirely Jewish fraternity, right? So like, and that was, that was just like my happenstance. I didn't think about it. I was like, oh, I joined this fraternity. Oh, it turns out it's a Jewish fraternity. I'm like, and they're cool with me. So like, I'm good. Like, um, and so like, I, I surrounded myself like, like, and this was like, so I prided myself in being like, oh, like I've made it, right? Like I'm accepted and I've assimilated to white American culture. And, and so, and then similarly it's like, oh, if I have a white girlfriend, right? Like that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate, right? You, you like, and I grew up uh, on the exact identical blueprint. Yeah, man. I, yeah, no, like I mean, hearing some of your other stories too. Like, There's yes. not even like a, a, like a deviation, like a, a half point deviation. It's exactly the same. We studied the same blueprint to, 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 to form our, to shape who we thought we wanted to be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. To see what you were saying about exclusive, um, you know, you were the only uh, Vietnamese, you know, you thought you made it. I mean, every step of the journey for me, even in the military, it was like, okay, I'm hanging out with a big white six foot and above, you know, that's like my crew. And I, and I can hang, I can hang. I'm, I'm them. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just as good. And it's so shameful to think about that. And, you know, up until my thirties, I mean, it was like predominantly dating white women. Why? Yeah. Because I needed to prove to the world that I am white. As good, as good as white people. Crazy right? shit when you think yeah. about it, you know? And the, the funny thing was like, because I speak Vietnamese, because I did stuff with the Vietnamese community when I was at home, right? Behind closed doors, so yeah. to speak. And because of who my mother was and who her involvement was in the Vietnamese community, right? Like I, uh, I rationalized to myself, right? That like, oh, I'm not abandoning my Vietnamese roots because I would compare myself to the, the Vietnamese people and the Asian people that were super whitewashed, right? That were like, like that were like basically Beckys, right? That didn't speak Vietnamese, that didn't like Vietnamese food, right? That that only dated white dudes, or like or like white people, right? And like were so whitewashed, they were like literally ashamed, like very ashamed, or like in, in some ways they were probably more honest than I was being with myself, to be <laughs> honest, like in, in retrospect. Um, but like, that's how I rationalized it. I was just like, Oh yeah, I do all these things here, but yeah. it's okay. Like I'm going to be Vietnamese over here. Like I never had friends over for dinner unless it was like my, like the, the handful of friends that ever stayed for dinner were half Asian <laughs> or, or like, or just really close, really close, really close friends. It was very, very seldom that I invite somebody over for dinner. Right. Uh, and only in college when my mom would send, ho send Jazal home, like to me as in a care package and I started eating and my friends were like, what's that? And I, I introduced them to Jazal and, 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 and Nuk Mam, right. And they were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Did I start to like gain some confidence and like, okay, I have something unique. And like, you know, I, I you know, because I speak to my parents in Vietnamese, right. And, and, and sprinkle in English, right. They're like, my friends always thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Right. They're like, dude, I don't know how you do it. You speak Vietnamese. And all of a sudden you say like, laundry <laughs> right and so like so only then did i start to gain some confidence and but it was a very tight-knit circle like my greatest phobia of like dating somebody white was like what are they going to think about my, my 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 parents house right and they don't have like napkin rings and like perfectly perfect linens and they don't have we don't serve three courses for a meal right like you know what are they going to think about the smells right and, and like, that was always my phobia. 
right? Um, and so it's 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 been and and so like just thinking about like you know understanding like the like my relationship with American culture is is been it's it's been very like just really eye opening. Um, uh, and 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 so you know, especially within the context of of what's happening right now in the Asian American community, like I feel more empowered, and that's why I I I, I wholeheartedly believe that we are on the cusp of a new um, era of of Asian American activism, um, and uh, and and I'm 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 here for it, you know. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you're here for it, and I'm glad that we're here to talk about that. Uh, I. I am now like wondering for the next few um, minutes, you know, that we have to go, you know, I still want to hear about Nike and Audi and Red Bull. I mean, all of these things, I'm, this is what I'm here for. Uh, But then, you know, with the limited amount of time, I mean, we're, we're really deep into, um, you know, I always have 25 to 30 questions prepared and we are really, only on my third question <laughs> sorry man i'm a little long-winded that's no, which is definitely great. not which is Brevity great is not my suit. No. this is uh why i do it because um the unexpected stories that you tell um and i am more than happy to deviate from the uh, line of question i have boring fucking questions you know just... <laughs> i mean hey like this is you know this helps me is, is this is this is almost like therapy to me i mean to be perfectly candid this is this is definitely the most candid I've, I've, I've been about sort of my journey too. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for you to provide the opportunity and the platform to do so um, and, uh, and do it very vulnerably for, for your audience <laughs> as well. And, and but, I, um, but I know, I know, you know, you're a very curious person. So like, you know, I'm, I'm here to answer your questions. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you for being very open about it. Cause I know um, a lot of the things that we talk about with the shame, with the uh, white identity, those things are, 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 they're very embarrassing when you, when you sit and you think about you as a, as a third person, you know, you don't, you don't think yourself as yourself and you go, dude, that is some fucked up things. If you think about it, you know? Yeah. But here's the thing is like, I, I, I've, I've become like a big believer in redemption, right. Uh, and allowing people to evolve, right. Like, especially when you think about like, sort of like progressive politics right now, it's like in cancel culture, right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, for sure. Some people need to be absolutely canceled. Like they just don't deserve their platforms and, and, and whatever the case may be, like that's for certain. But most of the time, right, this is like, you know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, there's a writer named Anand Giridas uh, uh, um, who, who, who has a saying that says like, is there room amongst the woke for the still waking? Wow, right? I, this is the first time I've heard, I love that. And, and I heard this once and I was just like, this is exactly how I feel because the person that I was a handful of years ago, a handful of years ago, before I started getting involved in progressive activism and, and social justice, is a different, very different person. I held certain beliefs um, loosely, loosely held beliefs that that I look back at now and it's like, oh, that's wrong, right? But had people not understood my intention, if people had not taken those moments when I said something wrong or maybe yeah. incorrectly or or, or misspoke. Um, uh, or was vulnerable enough to say something that I, I believed and maybe was 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 uh, was wrong, so to speak. If people had just shouted at me, right, and condemned me, like I would have just shut up and never spoken up again, right? Um, and uh, and that's not how you learn, 
right? But you know, uh, you know, credit to all those the people that I uh, that that were around me at the time and 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 took the moment to teach me, yeah, right, uh, and be patient with me, allow me to redeem myself, and allow me to evolve, right? Like I was able to change my perceptions of things, right? And so when I have conversations with people that have slightly more conservative, you know, more conservative uh, opinions than me or beliefs. Right, it's like I, I take those opportunities as 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 hard as it is, as difficult as it is, you know, um, uh, taking those opportunities to make that a teaching moment, right, um, and and informing them. They may they may not get it that time, but they, you know, sometime sometime down the road, they they it'll click for them. Um, and so similarly with you know grappling with my own Asian identity, like um, uh, and and what it is to be Vietnamese and Vietnamese American, like you know. Yeah, I I held up some I held some really fucked up beliefs um, and and things that I'm kind of deeply ashamed about. But unless I talk about it in the open um, and and you know let other people know that they're not the only ones thinking these things and that there's there's uh, another side to this, right? And that there's a way to evolve your thinking about it. Um, you know, you really have to really meet people where where they are. Yeah, um, yeah. and oftentimes that's really difficult. Um, here's um here's where i'm at i i think the gauge and it's funny because i i think here's where i'm at with the gauge of like my evolution and sort of where i'm at is like if i look out into the frontier or i look out and see what i like but let's just take women for example right being so quote unquote attracted to white women when i was growing up and I look back and I'm like, no, no, that was like a, a construct of, of, of shame and embarrassment coming from my inner workings of my mind. Today, I look at the landscape of women and being attracted to, you know, I'm married to a Taiwanese woman, but looking out, there shouldn't be this sort of, I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, why are you, it's kind of like, why are you attracted to a certain type of woman? Um, and for me now, it's like, you got to remove all that. You got to, it's almost like a cleansing uh, exercise to to remove all of the superficial side of things and, and look really on the inner workings of somebody's mind and who they are. But then I'm wondering, like, is that even evolved enough yet? Because I think the, the most evolved thing is to kind of just um, not even have to worry about thinking about that, right? You get to a point where, you know, it's not even a, a response anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, for me, at the end of the day, it always starts with why, right? It's yeah. like, we just need to be in the business of constantly asking ourselves and being very inquisitive about ourselves, like in, in self-reflecting and, and asking, why do I think this, right? And really kind of deconstructing it. It's not easy, right? Like I think, I think right now is just like, you know, there's a great awakening on so many fronts for so many people. And the people that have been in it for the longest are like, wait, welcome to the party, right? And they're the ones that are like, yo, I don't have time to teach you, right? But the reality is that's the majority of people right now. Yeah. Right. And so like we, you know, we didn't like the, the greatest thing, like when I think about like things like Me Too, for example, right? It's just like, yeah, you know what? Like I guarantee you, there have been more, like men have had more conversations about sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, uh, you know, gender bias and all these things, right? Um, even if they disagree with it, I guarantee you there's been more conversations had about this. Than the entirety of history in the past just a handful of years because right? <laughs> even if you disagree about it you're talking about talking it, about it right? yeah like i have come like and so like it's one of those things where like we have to again people need to meet uh 
we, we need to meet each other where, where we're at, right? So, and then be vulnerable enough to show like, hey, I actually didn't know this, but now I do. So now I'm going to impart this information on you and let you make your own decision, right? And inform you. And then of course, there's some people that are on for very far extreme of both ends, right? People that are like, you know, lifelong activists that have been in this and they're tired, right? And they're just like, I'm going to keep on marching. We need those people because that's what, they're, they're our leaders, right? Uh, and then there's people on the opposite end of the spectrum that, you know, will never engage in a good faith uh, conversation about it. So it's, it's not even worth it. And so, you know, but constantly we need to be asking ourselves, right? Um, like we need to constantly be asking ourselves, like, you know, why, why, um, why, why we think the things that we do, right? And before we even get into like this idea of like social constructs, right? Like, cause that's, that's a big idea. Like there's so much nuance in this, but it's just like, you know, like you really do, like you need some people to, to ask critical questions. Um, and if it can't, you can't rely on other people. You got to rely on yourself. Yeah. Um, so. Absolutely. You know, uh, we're going to keep drifting into uh, this social stuff, but I still want to go back to Red Bull because you said yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. that I can't, I can't uh, stop thinking about. You said that yeah. Red Bull's, uh, uh, their their marketing program or the way they've integrated uh, into that college um, life or, and you said it's very cutting edge, but how do you think that they figured that out? How did, how do you think that they developed that strategy? Yeah. Yeah, so I wasn't, I mean, so Red Bull has been around since 1987, right? Okay. Um, it was originally founded in the 80s, uh, earlier than that in Thailand, right? In, in a very industrious Austrian man by the name of Dietrich Mateschitz. Wait, Austrian man, you said? Uh, yeah, yeah, an Austrian man. Austrian man in Thailand. Well, yeah, so he so you know, he lived in Austria, but um, traveled to Southeast Asia a lot, or Asia a lot. Um, and uh, he's selling, uh, uh, he worked for a consumer packaged goods company and, and sold toothpaste basically and you'd go to asia and he's super jet lagged and people introduced him to energy tonics and he discovered red bull which in thailand and i'm sure i'm mispronouncing it um is, is creating dang right um and he just discovered like he found that this was like a really profitable and and and, and very um uh popular energy tonic um and so he spent his life savings which is about half a million dollars and uh and bought the rights to red bull for the western for the western world so for a long time up until like very recently the only red bull that you would find in thailand was the original red bull which is not carbonated it comes in a glass vial right um and uh and so he was just like so he took it back to to austria he tinkered with it added carbonation made it a little bit more palatable to to western taste um and then and then went out within 1987 and it flopped right because people didn't understand people didn't understand like it was like a soda right so people were like I can buy a 50 cent Coca-Cola. Why do I need to buy a $2 thing, so right? Mm -hmm. So he realized that like you need, there needed to be a great deal of education, right? And so what he started to do, uh, and again, like this is not the perfect, this is all paraphrased, right? And, and from, you know, what I know of it is like, so he started going to bartenders and DJs, right? People that are up all night. And he was like, try this. And of course, it, it helped people stay up all night and party all night, right? Yeah. Uh, and probably wake up in the morning too. And so he went to these people and like, you know, Red Bull, everybody associates Red Bull with Red Bull and vodka. Like Red Bull's like at the time I worked there, you know, 15 years ago, you know, like uh, like uh, like Red Bull sales at bars only accounted for 20% of the sales, right? Like it's the number one selling product in all 7-Eleven, 
right? So people drink it for a multitude of other reasons, right? Of which it's probably not drinking it with tequila or, or mm -hmm. vodka. So, but like those are the image makers. Those are the people that those are the people that are influencers at the time, right? So he spent a lot of time, and this is when the the Red Bull car came about, the little Mini Cooper with the can on the back. Yeah, right? it was like he went around. He knew that the the cars would be attractive and like be interesting and and, and something that would drive word of mouth, uh, and and people would educate. So originally these people were called consumer educators, which is very dull, but it would be like, hey, they like I was I used to tell people, and this is less, it's a lot looser and faster now, but like it used to be like you wouldn't get a can of Red Bull unless you had a conversation with somebody that qualified you to drink a Red Bull. So like if you were, if they caught you at seven in the morning and they caught you at seven in the morning uh, coming off the escalator at the Metro at the subway, right? And you have a cup of coffee in your hand, right? Drinking a Red Bull is not gonna make you, it's not gonna help you, right? It's like taking an aspirin without a headache, yeah. right? So they were like, they would qualify people and be like, they catch you and they look like you were having a, a, a tough morning or like a, late, a really late night. You're about to have a really late night. They'd be like, hey, try Red Bull. And of course, people would be like, what is this stuff? It's crazy. Like, this is just a bunch of caffeine. Like, what's what's glucronolactone? What's taurine? What's all these things? And they were super well-versed in this. So they would just educate people on it, right? And this is where I started learning. It was like, at some people, you're never going to convert. The people that loves their, you know, venti Starbucks, you're never going to, you're likely never going to convert them, right? But the person that's having a really bad day or like, you know, having a really tough morning and they're dragging or the, or the student that needs to, that needs to pull on all nighter for the final. Mm -hmm. You give them a Red Bull at the right time, they are yep, going to be like, "Oh my God, thank you!" Right, and it proved itself time and time again, right. And so that was kind of the genesis of of, of this is just understanding that you know. And then what was happening in Austria and Europe, right, for a decade before it came to the United States was like, you know, the the founder Dietrich is like he's like he's in his eighties now, I think maybe even nineties. He's he's a really old guy, but he's like a he's like he is an extreme sports junkie, right? Mm -hmm. Like he flies planes, he jumps out of planes, he jumps off. He, he's he's an extreme sports junkie, and so naturally he gravitated to these communities, and you know brought Red Bull to the to to it. Um, and these people are just like adrenaline junkies. So like this is like yeah, it's gonna pump me up to do uh, a like you know like a, a nine hundred on a snowboard pipe, right? Like half pipe. And so like the, um, and then the other thing was like, they realized is, is that like, so Red, Red Bull's mission at one point was to give people an ideas wings, right? So everything that you see Red Bull do is like an act of sort of benevolence to that community, right? So like when Sean White wanted to practice and win the gold at the Olympics, they built him a private half pipe because he was training in Tahoe, right? And people were like basically videotaping him and stealing his, his tricks, right? So they built him a private half pipe to improve, to improve it. You know, Red Bull Air Race, for example, is a result of like stunt pilots, acrobatic pilots going to Dietrich, like a Red Bull and being like, you know what? We don't like to just do tricks. We like to go fast too. So they're like, all right, well, let's create a Formula One race series in the sky. Oh, right? shit. And so like, so it was, it's, it's a matter of, and this is how I like, in, you know, I'm very fortunate to have been, that was like my first job, like right. first marketing job was that like, it taught me everything outside the box. Right. And so like, it taught me that like you lead by listening, right. You don't come to the skateboarding community or the breakdancing community and tell them like, this is what we're going to do. Here's a bunch of money, do it. Right. It's actually a matter of listening 
right? And actually building relationships with them that are meaningful and listening to what they want. What are their hopes and dreams? What is going to progress their sport or their activity or their, their community? And then Red Bull has resources to help bring those things to fruition. So, you know, there's a Red Bull breakdancing competition back in the day called Red Bull BC1, right? And if you know anything about b-boying, right? Like it's always crew versus crew, right? And b-boys were coming to, to Red Bull and me like, in, because Red Bull supported b-boying, right? B-boys would come to Red Bull and be like, Yo, you know what? There's never, there's never been a competition where it's like solo, one-on-one to find out who the best b-boy is in the world. Mm-hmm. And so they came out with a one-on-one competition called Red Bull BC1, right? And that went on for a decade. Um, and, and where people just continually one up to each other and progress the sport, right? Um, and so, so that's that's kind of like the 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 long of the the long of it um, in okay. terms of like how kind of Red Bull landed on that sort of what we now identify as relationship marketing, relationship driven marketing. Okay, you uh, pointed out this very specific thing with with Red Bull's uh, development in in terms of how they figured out how to help the community that they were going into. Is there a way where we can, for the next few minutes, talk about the one kind of takeaway that you got at Audi, at Nike, at 72 and Sunny? Can you do one takeaway from each company and then we can get into, uh, you know, post-Lockwood strategy uh, or... or, Right, because I kind of I, I need to move it along, but at the same time, I can't let <laughs> the whole experiences of each of these companies uh, go. So I want to. Can you? Yeah, take- we'll go, you want to go through the resume, like. <laughs> yeah, well, we go through the resume. One one takeaway from the resume. One takeaway from, from each- yeah from each uh, company because I have like questions on top of questions of each of these companies that we won't have the time to get into because I I really do want to hear where you're going um, after this uh, the, the after the Trump thing and, and our community yeah. is a, a Vietnamese community so but I do want to hear you know Audi Nike and all of these companies so yeah yeah let's 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 uh, let's uh, let's go um, so uh, after I graduated college I went to work at coca-cola um, so if Red Bull, my, my, my part-time job in school taught me everything outside the box, I would say that like Coca-Cola taught me everything inside the box. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, at the time, the most valuable brand on earth, right? You go to the, the jungles of Vietnam and the only American English word that anybody knows in Vietnam is Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. right? And so like taught me the, the power of, of a brand with equity and that traditional marketing works. There's a reason why traditional marketing works. Um, then I went to go work at Cartier, um, and that taught me that, that and on sales, and, and frankly, my greatest takeaway is that I, uh, I don't like having to wear a suit, um, and I don't like working in luxury. Um, why? Uh, why, not? why don't you like working luxury? It, like working luxury, it's, it's a very arrogant business, to be frank. Right, it's it's it is elitist, and the yeah. more the more I look back at it now, I'm like, this is such an elitist thing. And look, I nice I like nice things. Don't get me wrong, right? Like I, I love nice things, um, but at the end of the day, it's uh, it's they don't need me helping them, right? <laughs> um, and then and then um, and then it was a sales job, and I realized I was terrible at sales. Like I like marketing because it's a soft sell, right? If I understand my consumer correctly, I'm going to put an idea out there. Yeah. Right? Um, there's a there's a Seth Godin quote, and I always paraphrase it. This is like marketing is not about trickery or deception. It is about sharing something you believe in with 
other people, which is why religion is like the best example of marketing in existence, right? It's like a bunch of people that deeply believe in something and just want to even like evangelize it, right? And share it with other people and their enthusiasm, right? Is just naturally infectious, right? And if it meets, if that message meets the right person, it's going to resonate with them. And so like marketing, you know, I, I want, I, I like the, I liked having the sales experience, but that's the push, right? And I need to understand, like, and I, I prefer the poll, which is putting an idea out there and if I've done a good job, if I'm a good marketer, then that's going to resonate with a certain group of people and they'll naturally want to buy it. Yeah. I don't need to force it on people, right? Yeah. Um, which is what my perception of sales is, right? Uh, then uh, I went to Red Bull full-time overseeing the, the collegiate marketing program that I was a part of uh, for the country. Um, and, and that really just taught me, like, like to be honest, like one, the, the power of relationship building, the power of like on the ground, on the ground marketing, which is not what every company can do. Every company pays a lot of money for TV advertising. Red Bull was the only one that really put people on the ground to be connected deeply, intimately with the communities that they serve. Right? It's changed now, but that's still the 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 sort of in the DNA of, mm. of Red Bull, and that's informed everything I've I've done in life and in in, in work um, from there on out. Uh, is to listen first. And then it also taught me that when others zig, you need to zag. And you always need to know where people are zigging so that you can zag, right? Um, and if you can imagine, you know, that was everything outside the box. Um, then I went to, uh, then I had opportunity to go to 72 and Sunny, which is, you know, in, in my mind, the best creative agency on, on the earth, on earth right now, with the exception of a couple, maybe a couple others. But like um, that taught me, um, that taught me actually what strategy was. Um, at Red Bull, uh, because I, I, because I was a former b-boy, because I skateboarded, because I snowboarded, I was marketing to myself. But what happens when you get a, a brand that you know nothing about, a toilet paper brand, right? And really understanding like what the to who the toilet paper consumer is, and not that I actually never worked on a toilet paper brand, but like I worked on brands that I knew nothing about, right? Um, and that really taught me what strategy was, um, was was understanding who the consumer is, what's unique about the product. And then making sure that you communicate that unique selling point to this very specific group that is highly receptive to that message, right? Uh, and really doing things that drive business. Like Red Bull, to be frank, at the time when I worked there, ROI was not necessarily the primary concern. They had a, a tremendous amount of money. They had they were privately held. They still are, and so they they did whatever was cool. Like if it was cool, they did it, and they spent a ton of money doing it, um, and it worked for them. Most companies don't act that way. Most companies have a very specific business result that they need to drive, right? And that's what that's what 72 and Sunny taught me. Then I got to Nike, um, which I mean, I, can, I wish I could summarize into one thing, but like, and I'll, I'll do my best to, but really what Nike taught me was that, um, was that uh, when, when a company has very clear values, they are unstoppable. Hmm. My the one of my first bosses at at, at, at Nike, um, Jenny Campbell, um, uh, she she said, when this place gets behind a single idea, it's like a freight train you can't stop. Um, and I always tell people when because I, I do work with people that you know need to develop a mission and a vision and a and positioning and values. And I was like every, at, at Nike, you know everybody knew everybody knew that their mission was to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And if you are an athlete, if you, are, if you have a body, you are an athlete. 
right? Wow. And everybody had that tattooed in their brain. And then we had 10 maxims, right? At the time, now there's only, I think five, but there's 10, there are 10 maxims that guided our work. Things like evolve immediately. Uh, things like simplify and go. So like if you were in a meeting and you were, you were like spinning and spinning and spinning, they're like, guys, let's just simplify and just go, right? Uh, if the ground shifted underneath you culturally, like we needed to evolve immediately, right? Um, and things like that. Um, but wait, can I, so, can I interrupt? Yeah. Why, why did it go from 10 maxims to five? Simplify and go, <laughs> right? Evolve immediately. <laughs> if those maxims no longer suit the business, and I don't know, because actually it was after my time that they went to 10 from 10 to five. Um, but like I imagine it was a conversation about like, is it too complicated, right? Has, has, has our business changed in a way that it needs to, um, these things need to, to, to evolve. And most people just cling on to what always was, right? Um, and, and brands like Nike, the most successful brands in the world, know when they've overstayed their welcome and they need to change. Um, and so, so it taught me that. Um, then when I, when I went to Audi, um, uh, it was a reminder that I don't like working in luxury, um, uh, to be honest, and I don't like wearing a suit. So between Cartier and Audi, I always had to wear a suit. Um, and I was just like, this is as much as I actually, you know, I, I think I look pretty good in a suit, but like, but to be frank, it, it felt like a costume every day. Um, it felt like a costume. Um, and, and the more you think about it, it it's really, it, it is, it's really the most um, arbitrary thing. A dress code is the most arbitrary thing in the world because on Fridays, it was casual Friday, right? So what's different about my Friday, right? That, that, that allows me to wear jeans and a, and a button down instead of a, instead of a full three-piece suit, Yeah. right? What does it matter, right? Am I not the same person with the same intelligence, with the same value to add? No, of course not, right? Uh, and meanwhile, and what the most hypocritical thing and the most arbitrary thing of it all was that in the same building at, at Audi North America headquarters, right? Audi of America headquarters was also um, uh, Volkswagen, Lamborghini, Bentley, and Bugatti all in the same building. And on two floors where Audi was, it was all suits. On the next two floors above that was Volkswagen and it was all business casual. And like, we're in the same business. And you could argue that, oh yeah, we're a premium brand, yeah, 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 but that's bullshit. Like it makes, it makes the whole construct of luxury just even dumber, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so like, so I, I, like, but I will say is that like um, Audi taught me because my job was to help innovate the retail experience to make it, to compete with, you know, Tesla being able to buy a phone, a car on a phone in 15 minutes, right? What's the retail experience going to be like for people that have that expectation? Was, was that, you know, um, everybody, it taught me that everybody says they want the bright sparkly object, right? And then, well, and, and then you tell them how much it's gonna cost, how much effort it's gonna take. And then they're all of a sudden very gun shy, right? And they're like, oh, I don't think we're ready for that, right? Uh, like my friend said it best, was like, everybody wants the Ferrari until you tell them how much a Ferrari costs, right? Um, and so uh, like I was, I found myself incredibly frustrated uh, in an organization that was frankly unwilling uh unwilling to actually change uh and right. actually uh evolve itself despite what they were saying right um and then when i jumped into when i finally jumped into politics with uh lockwood strategy um and working with uh with acronym um you know the, my biggest takeaway is that you know um uh creative people um 
deserve a seat at the grown-ups table um, in politics. Uh, and I think a lot of problems would be solved if creative thinkers um, had a more meaningful seat at the table. Uh, and I am confident of that. And, and it just reinforced something that I've always believed is that culture is the force multiplier, right? Yeah. Um, and culture will move the, the, the Obama Shepherd Ferry Hope poster um, was an instrumental part of getting Barack Obama elected. And you, nobody will ever tell me otherwise. And the funny thing is like, nobody can quantify it. Nobody can put that into a data, retro, even retroactive, retrospectively. Nobody can, nobody can rationalize that with data and everything in politics is data, 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 and very low acumen for, for, for culture. Uh, and what working in politics taught me is that like, is that there, there needs to be more creatives at the table and not a bunch of political like consultants who only know, only know what people are thinking because they asked it in a poll. You need people that understand culture and how people behave. And that was validated when I learned that like in politics, there's actually very little to no ethnographic research. Everything is polling, right? So people don't really understand culture and consumer and, and, and voter and, and behaviors and attitudes. They only know what their response is and their reaction is to a, a policy point. Yeah. These are great, these are great points about you know the intersection of politics and creative uh creatives we are at a a very i i think sometimes it's a very cool place in politics now with the polar polarization of, of of political parties and the way we we see things but the polarity exists and you see this sort of space in the gap but at the same time now i'm seeing a proliferation of long-form podcasting people really kind of breaking down conversation in terms of like, well, you know, you can believe in a multitude of things. You don't have to believe in these polarized. So we're on one, on one hand, we have the existence of these very extreme views, but on, on the other side of it, we're actually having more discussions as a result of it. I mean, how do you feel about that? That's my, my take. No, and I, I totally agree with you, right? It's just like, obviously what we see and hear most are the, like the very polar extremes, right? And the vast majority, like, you know, we get along with our neighbors and our conservative neighbors, yeah. right? Like when we talk to them, <laughs> yeah. right? And, but like, we, we've, we've kind of picked our corners and we fight from the polls, right? When the reality is the vast majority of Americans are, are somewhere in the middle uh, and we're complicated. Like humans are complicated. It is, people have forgotten the, the, the concept of mutual exclusivity. Right. And, and the very fact that people can hold two conflicting um, thoughts and ideas about something that might be incompatible. Right. But it's not a zero sum game. Yeah. And that people people can can hold contradictory opinions. Right. And so and no. And, and to that point, nobody can pass the purity test. Progressives, especially put each other through purity tests that nobody can pass nobody right oh you oh you love you love like you 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 support gay rights have you ever eaten a chick-fil-a <laughs> oh oh well like you need to be canceled right like like it's 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 nobody will ever pass a purity test right and and so and again i understand having ideals right 
Ideals are incre like incredibly important, but you cannot hold people to these purity tests and cancel them for the slightest misstep, right? And again, there are people that absolutely deserve to be canceled and never heard of from ever, ever again, right? But the vast majority of people, many of whom are, have more conservative opinions, right? Like do not deserve to be exiled, right? And deserve, deserve room to evolve and redeem themselves, right? Um, and, and, you know, at some point you have to like wash your hands clean of it and be like, okay, well, like it's not worth it. Right. Because I don't believe that you're engaging in a good faith conversation. Right. But the vast majority of people are willing to have a good, good yeah, faith conversation yeah. if you allow them to. And if you attack them, then they, then they're just like retreat. Right. Um, and so like, what I say is like, you know, there's only 14 states. There's, there's 14 states that require no civic um, uh, no, no, no civics class to graduate high school, right? Or equivalent. And, and a reminder that, that American history, government, and social studies are technically not civics. Civics is a different subject altogether. It is the duty of, like, the duty of being a citizen, right? Um, and I didn't grow up with a civics class. I had government, I had history, and I had social studies, but never a civics class. Um, and so, you know, what, what's happened is that we, and because we have a reasonably well-functioning democracy, right, we become apathetic. We aren't concerned, maybe up not until recently, like we weren't concerned every day about corruption in the government, right, about a totalitarian uh, dictatorship coming and, 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 and ruling our country, right? And so we were like, hey, you know what? Government's in the background. We don't need to be paying attention to those things. And of course, over the past five years, we've had this great awakening where now people are more politically engaged than ever, right? And perhaps in the history of, of the country. Yeah. And, but we've, we've become so unsophisticated about our understanding for government and how it works. And why I appreciate somebody like an AOC or Katie Porter, whether you like them or not, what they do every time they get on camera or, or, or open their mouths is that they are demystifying government for people. They are explaining government in terms that people understand in metaphors and analogies that people, normal people can understand, not people that studied poli-sci in college, right? right? Like they're using normal words that people can understand so that people understand how to hold their government accountable because ultimately that's what we have is a republic that we have to hold accountable. That's what democracy is. But we've grown so unsophisticated with our understanding for government. I'm talking about the average person, right? And so unsophisticated about how we talk about it that all we do is argue. And we're just using a hammer, mm -hmm. right? Instead of a chisel. Yeah. And so that's when you get into these really blowout matches with your family because we just don't have the vocabulary. Like my vocabulary when it comes to social justice and 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 uh, and advocacy and politics has expanded uh, infinitely. And then imagine we want to segue into like the Vietnamese American perspective of it is like, you know, we have to translate this stuff to our parents, right? We have to translate what Black Lives Matter is and, and Medicare for all and what uh, 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 and, and, and what a, a gerrymandering is and these yeah. things. If, if you really break it down, the difference and the divide really is in definitions, 
right? It's really in the yeah. stories and the gaps that are not being filled. So you have pivot, you have vid fact check, yeah. Yeah. you have all of these. Uh, and thank God for them. Yeah, because the interpreter. Because I can't, I can't keep up with with the email chains that my 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 mom and their friends or her friends are on. Yeah, right? like I can't compete. Like it, it's a fire hose of misinformation. Yeah. It's just uh, misinformation or the lack of just any real information. And that's that's kind of what we're dealing with. But now the real question that I always ask um, guests like yourself is we're in an echo chamber, right? It's us, prog uh, it's progressives, it's liberals, it's or it's conservatives and people on the right just talking to themselves now. Or is it changing? Is this evolving? Are we becoming more of a spread out, uh, more even uh, society as we're shifting away from the last four or five years? Or is it becoming more polarized? Um, I think it's going to get worse before it gets it gets better, um, frankly. And, and um, you know, the founder, the founder of, of, uh, of my company that I just left, Lockwood Strategy, um, uh, Tara McGowan, would, would say that um, uh, there's no such thing as 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 uh, as balanced anymore, right? Uh, and so, like, she would believe that you have to fight fire with fire, right? So you have to create a robust ecosystem on the left to compete with the robust ecosystem on the right, right? Because there's so many nefarious actors, and it's just so sophisticated um, that and and aided and abetted by these social media platforms, right? Uh, that allow rampant misinformation to, to, to spread like wildfire. Um, and so you, you, need to, you need to fight fire with fire. I tend to actually believe the, the, the same thing. Um, but what I do believe is like these, these sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat conversations that you have in your spaces are the most valuable thing you can do. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but I'm confident that if you um, base your base your conversations and arguments in fact, and you allow for growth and and evolution and redemption, that eventually people will come around when 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 like Republicans continue to kill people, right? Um, frankly, um, and and so I like I said before, it's like. I don't think it's worth engaging with the people that are on the far right, right? That have no interest in having a good faith conversation. I'm interested in the person that is curious, right? Um, that is, uh, that just doesn't quite literally just doesn't know. Um, and just providing them with information. Um, and it's like, it's like parenting and I don't have a, I don't have a child, but I imagine parenting is a lot of like telling your kid the same thing over and over and over again. Right. And eventually they realize that you're right. Uh, and like I say, like I, in retrospect, I'm like, the older you get, the, the more right your parents become. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think about that a lot. And, and, and it seems like a, such a silly analogy, but like if anything, if, if Red Bull taught me anything, was that like, you know, I've met so many people that were like, I don't want any of that crap when I try to give them the Red Bull, even when I was trying to help them. They're like, oh, no, man, never. I'll never try that. Only a few years later to be like, dude, I, I had a Red Bull on my road trip and dude, it saved me, <laughs> right? And so like, it's like, you know what? In a way, like fuck the haters, right? Like have the conversations, take advantage of your privilege 
I think as Asian Americans, particularly, right, and, and bilingual Vietnamese, like bilingual Vietnamese Americans, especially, like you have the opportunity to translate these things. Like I had to ask my mom for a glossary. She, and she was, she was good enough to write a glossary for me. Yeah. Right. Um, of like terms and, and, and words. And of course there's things that are floating around online and God bless all the people and volunteers that did that. But like, you know, we have the opportunity to translate these, these, these really complicated ideas in, for our relatives and our family and our parents. Right. And then like for us, like we should take advantage of our proximity to whiteness and have these conversations with with the, the the white people in our in our lives and, and of any ethnicity frankly right where where there is misunderstanding um and i i would say is like i've had more conversations i've had more conversations about race and politics with uber drivers right than i've ever had in the entirety of my life yeah right? we get deep and dc might be an interesting bubble because like every every uber driver is listening to npr right every cab driver is listening to npr constantly but like but these are the conversations and sometimes they don't go well and sometimes they get awkward and sometimes we don't have the answers, but it's okay to say like, I don't know the answer to that. Let me go find out. Um, and, and it's, it's chipping away. Like, you know, uh, it, it's, it's like, you know, we've made progress, right? But if 2016 taught us anything and the rise of Trump taught us anything is that like, hey, maybe we hadn't made as much progress as we thought. And so now we have a baseline. We have a baseline of just how, you know, how much racism and xenophobia and, uh, Islamophobia and uh, and and uh, and homophobia all are still deeply rooted in the systems of, of, of this country, right? And so cool. And you can't fix what you can't see. And so for a long time, I think we were like the vast majority were flying blind and and, and blissfully ignorant. Uh, and now that you've seen it, really hard to ignore it. And so we all we all have the responsibility to educate ourselves seek questions, ask, I mean, sorry, seek answers and ask questions and be curious about why we hold the beliefs that we have, why other people hold the beliefs that they have, empathize with one another, right? And continue to have these conversations as difficult and as, as painful as they might be. Victor, I thank you so much for your, uh, your accumulated sort of viewpoints on you know coming out of the marketing world into politics and I, I feel like we got into a lot of uh, a lot of things a lot of topics that we could have gone further into but I think uh, touching up with the just touching uh, on the the brand the brand uh, work that you did was just a little bit but I, I wanted more but going into the further conversations of, of politics and, and Vietnamese community and and empathizing and listening to each other is sort of like the goal of the next few years, right? And um, I, I want to have you eventually back on with other uh, people who are speaking um, about this topic like you are. Uh, and I want to uh, further explore where our community is headed uh, maybe put together a panel. I always talk about that mini panels of two or three uh, of my former guests. Uh, you, Cookie Jung uh, from The Interpreter would be yeah. you know, wonderful people to, 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 to talk about. But thank you so much for your time today. And um, I look forward to really getting to meet you uh, soon when you come back out to LA. Yeah, no, I, I hope to be out soon and, and get to, to, to meet you in person. But um, Ken, thank, thanks for the opportunity. Um, and, uh, uh, and I hope somebody finds this that's helpful or, or, or just um, relatable, if nothing else.
And, you know, when people do, when this goes on for years and it's up for years and whatever you do out in the world, there's always going to be a record of sort of your thoughts, uh, the digital record of, of you sharing your thoughts. And, and we get to really understand who you are. Um, hopefully some kid sees this three years from now and it inspires them to take on a creative journey uh, into their, you know, a professional creative journey in their lives. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Victor. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.